This is John Halsman, and welcome to our latest The Culture section for our newspaper to the world. And we're looking at Alfred Hitchcock through the decades. And today we come to the 1940s. And Hitchcock was so good and so prolific in this decade that I'm not even choosing Rebecca, which won the Best Picture Award and was his first American movie as one of the three movies to preview. I didn't even choose Rebecca, and the 1940s are not even his best decade of work. That's how good this guy was. And we're going to talk about three fascinating movies, all of them great today, without any doubt at all. And in fact, that's almost the title of the first of the movies, 1943's Shadow of a Doubt, 1946's Notorious, and the incredibly underrated 1948 Rope. But let's start with Shadow of a Doubt, 1943, starring the luminous Teresa Wright and the never better Joseph Cotton. This was Hitchcock's favorite movie. When asked and pressed to pick his favorite, he picked this movie. And it's easy to see why. Shot in black and white, uh, Uncle Charlie, um, the namesake of Charlotte, Teresa Wright's character, comes for a visit to his staid, claustrophobic, virtuous, if very dull relatives in Santa Rosa. Charlie comes from the bigger world, is charming, and there's no doubt that his niece has a quasi-Freudian crush on him with more than a little romantic feeling. Again, how Hitchcock can get all this Freudian angst and tension in in the 1940s. If anything, the censorship laws forced the directors of the time, particularly Hitchcock, to be very creative in how they went about showing things. And that subtlety, um, I think, works beautifully. Um, she adores Charlie, has quasi-romantic feelings for Charlie, but begins to realize he's a serial-killing sociopath. Cotton is a particularly inspired choice because Joseph Cotton was often the amiable, charming, second lead in every story. Let's remember his great friend Orson Welles said about Joseph Cotton, Son, you're a good actor, but you'll never be a great one. It's the goodness, the averageness, the decency, the second fiddle lead of Cotton that works here because he's allowed to be something more. He's charming. He seems to be every man. He seems the farthest thing from evil that you can imagine. And in fact, the other relatives in Santa Rosa and indeed the other townspeople think the world of Charlie because on the surface, he's charming as Joseph Cotton was. So playing with that type, Hitchcock achieves something more. The film is incredibly dark and unsettling and Freudian. Um, as the seemingly perfect uncle gives way to the fact that he's a psychopathic serial killer. And more than that, as Ch uh, Charlotte begins to listen to him, as Teresa Wright begins to listen to her um, uncle Charlie, he has a philosophy behind him, this of nihilism, that he lives only for the moment, only for today, never thinks of anything else. And while this would sound odd and slightly eccentric, because she begins to know that he's a widow killer, who kills widows and then takes their money, this assumes a sinister format. It's always with Hitchcock, but the banal becomes sinister, and he's never been better at showing that than this time. Um, yet again, his obsession with trains comes in. Uncle Charlie comes in on a train and is killed later on a train trying to kill his relative, Teresa Wright, who he loves but realizes is onto him, and in the tussle he is killed. Um, he's basically the perfect devil in disguise. 
Um, it's a highly plausible scenario, unlike some of Hitchcock's more melodramatic work, because it's a charming uncle, a local town, a stifling environment, and things not seeming to be what they actually are. In many ways, David Lynch would follow in Hitchcock's footsteps, footsteps here, saying life is not so tranquil beneath that white picket fence as people lead you to believe. Um, it's almost a film noir in that way, that the point is beneath the surface of American life, something's rotten in the state of Denmark. Hitchcock, new to America, begins to see the potentiality of this darkness that noir as a genre would later exploit in greater detail. Finally, a detective who's suspicious of Charlie being the only one wins Charlotte over. But Teresa Wright's heart will always be with her wicked uncle. And in the end, to keep that white picket fence surety, she cynically says he's died in a tragedy rather than revealing how evil he truly is. So the surface is kept, but she'll never be the same because what she loves, she's seen as evil. It's a fantastic, perverse, very American for having been here for only a short time thriller. And it's easy to see why it's Hitchcock's favorite because it's a great, great movie. The second film we're dealing with, 1946's Notorious, um, also plays on the notion of perversity and things not being what they seem and loyalty. And it's basically an odd menage a trois with Cary Grant, Ingrid Bergman, and the fantastic Claude Rains. Because of Bergman and Rains being in the film, there are overtones of Casablanca, an earlier, much more sentimental movie, whereas Notorious is cynical to its core, perverse and cruel even to its core in a great way. Again, how Hitchcock got all these feelings in uh, was because of the censor in an odd way and not despite of the censor, because he has to talk about, in this case, sex without showing sex. And this restraint, this illusion, this innuendo, make it a movie of great directorial restraint, and it really, really works. In order to uh, bring fleeing Nazis to justice who are off to South America, cynical U.S. government agent T.R. Devlin, who's Cary Grant, uh, recruits Alicia Huberman, Ingrid Bergman, who was the U.S. daughter of a German war criminal as a spy. And again, things are not what they seem. At first, you think Devlin is the hero. He's this upright uh, agent trying to track down Nazis, what could be more morally unambiguous. And Huberman is the drunken, easy-living, flippant daughter of a German war criminal. But immediately, this is subverted. Devlin has actually been sent to pimp Huberman out to one of the leading spies down in Brazil, uh, which isn't a very nice thing to do. And on the other hand, Huberman is not just the easy living drunken woman. She's deeply ashamed of her father, has a great love for the United States, and patriotically agrees to be a spy without knowing what she's letting herself in for. Worse than, of course, for Hitchcock, the two fall in love. And so now Devlin is pimping out the woman he loves to a Nazi Hardly a nice thing to do. Huberman is sacrificing herself for the greater good to Claude Rains. And to make the story even more interesting, Claude Rains is madly in love with Alicia. And his, his character, Alexander Sebastian, is madly in love, dotes on his wife because he marries her very quickly, having had a crush on her from knowing her earlier through her father, and is madly in love with her, treats her with nothing but kindness and decency. And so you have every single archetype of the movies Hitchcock had been forced to endure 
in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, subverted in this wonderful film with Devlin, the, the FBI agent, pimping out the woman he loves, the easy living woman he loves, actually sacrificing herself for the country selflessly, and the evil Nazi being madly in love with his wife. It's about what loyalty is. What are we ultimately loyal to? And it takes the characters a, a while to find this out. There's some fantastic technical scenes, but again, I think it's the characterizations of these three characters that work. I mean, Grant has almost never been better because, again, as was true with Joseph Cotton in Shadow of a Doubt, in Notorious, Hitchcock plays with Grant's screen persona, that he's the suave, likable, charming, debonair man every woman would like to date and every man would like to be. And it turns out he's a bit of a cad, ice cold, then jealous. He has the nerve to be jealous when Alicia marries Sebastian, which is exactly what he's been sent to do. So playing on this archetype is wonderful. Claude Rains also the archetype of Louis, the cynical characters that Rains played, worldly and cynical fall away when he falls madly in love with Alicia. And so playing on the two male leads archetype works. Yes, there's some great technical scenes, the great long kiss between Ingrid Bergman and Cary Grant shows the sexual chemistry and indeed shows that they've probably already had sex in the film without showing it. And this makes his betrayal of her even more wrenching to Sebastian, forcing her into the bed of a Nazi. And the long kiss is great. And the end scene is one of the great endings to all Hitchcock movies as a doomed Claude Rains is forced to go back into a house full of Nazis who know he's betrayed him. Not a word is said, but if you ever want to, you know, argue that Claude Rains is one of the great and underrated Hollywood actors, just watch his face. Without a word, he knows he's being led to his death, as he, in a humiliated way, having lost the girl and about to be killed, is forced to walk back to the house. A fantastic, great, great stuff. Um, the MacGuffin, as, as Hitchcock would say, the theoretical reason for the movie, which is never the reason for the movie. In Hitchcock, it's always the psychological characterizations and the people, the characters that matter. And that's why I love him so much. The MacGuffin is the Nazis have uranium. They might try to build a bomb and restore a Fourth Reich. None of that is developed and none of that particularly matters. It's merely a way to get these three characters dancing around each other in a tale of betrayal and loyalty, deceit and openness, and ultimately what it is to care about another human being. Fantastic, fantastic film. A psychological thriller wrapped in a spy thriller. And that couldn't be better. Notorious, also a great, great movie. And then the 1948 film Rope, which is wildly underrated and is another great film, which I bumped Rebecca to talk about. It's that good. Rope uh, stars James Stewart, John Dahl, and Farley Granger. It's a take on Patrick Hamilton's play Rope's End, which was about the Leopold and Loeb case. Hitchcock often said to people like Peter Bogdanovich, his biographer, another great director who recently died, when you're in a dry spell, when you, you don't know what to do, adapt a play. Because you get all the characterizations plus the claustrophobic atmosphere. And that's exactly what he does in Rope. It's a take again on the Leopold and Loeb case, the celebrated trial of the century of the 1920s, when two young, highly intelligent boys uh, who were in love with each other at the time, in the grip of Nietzsche's view of the Superman, decided for fun to kill a boy that they knew, the, a distant relative of one of them, and killed him, got caught, and then were sent up to trial. 
where death was almost assured for them when the great Clarence Darrow, one of the great American attorneys of all time, gave an impassioned speech against the death penalty saving both boys' lives. It's one of the better known American stories, and certainly in 1948, it was the O.J. Simpson trial had been um, of its time, earlier in the 20s and 30s, and everybody would have known this case and would have known the story of the Superman murders, as they were known. And so, they t and so Patrick Hamilton took this case and drilled down on the characterization between the two boys. The interesting thing about this story is that the two boys were gay, and that part of the motivation was their adoration for each other, as well as for Nietzsche and the theory of the Superman, that they were above concepts of right and wrong. Hitchcock has managed to make a movie which is lauded for its technical prowess, of which more in a second, but really is about showing homosexual passion of these elegant, well-living uh, boys who kill someone for no reason other than the thrill of it. But beneath it all, it's how do you show homosexuality on screen without showing homosexuality? And again, in the restraint of the time, Hitchcock brilliantly does that. Brilliantly does that. Um, in fact, it's so horrendous that they strangle this boy, David, and put his body inside a box, which serves as his casket, and then serve dinner for fun off the top of the box uh, with his father, his aunt, his sweetheart, and his former best friend are all invited. But the boys make a mistake. They also invite their mentor, who had taught them about Nietzsche and the Superman, uh, James Stewart, along, who plays the detective who increasingly begins to suspect that the boys have done something to David and indeed done away with him. And the film follows Stuart again, a brilliant acting job, underdoing, underplaying, as he suspects little by little by little that his former pupils have done an incredibly evil and horrible thing. The speech at the end about why Nietzsche is bad, and remember this happened just after World War II and Hitler's adoption of Nietzschean concepts of the Superman. The speech at the end is a bit like war propaganda, really the only flaw in the film, but it's Stuart's detective work along the way and his beautiful acting without a word if you watch him while the others are talking as he begins to suspect the worst of those that have gone along. Particularly good as is John Dahl as Brandon Shaw, Leopold to Farley Granger's Loeb, the lead boy planning everything, constantly daring things, constantly challenging fate by making things more likely that they get caught, more wicked, more evil, more blatant. Uh, to watch him is to watch evil blaze and then flicker out. Um, the film is unfortunately largely remembered as an unsuccessful technical experiment. Hitchcock filmed the entire film in eight-minute takes, about ten of them, eight-minute takes, without camera cuts. They'll do a cut into the back of someone's suit or into a closet. And this is distracting to some extent and gets in the way of really what the film ought to be about, which is the fantastic storyline between the boys, their interaction, their philosophical beliefs, and James Stewart's detection. It's the boys' homosexuality and how this is portrayed it's Stuart's detective work, and it's debunking the theory of Nietzsche and the Superman. This is a highly intellectual film that's sugar-coated in the candy of a wonderful whodunit. And the point is, we know who's done it. Right away, first scene, the boys commit the murder. It's not the who's done it, it's will they be caught. And Stuart's detective work makes this highly unusual film for the first time 
an underrated classic. Like a play, it's claustrophobic. No one can escape. And when Stuart comes back to talk to the boys and they realize that he's on to them, the tension goes from zero to 100 in a second. And it's a wonderful, underrated film, which, again, hits some of the great taboos, all three of these films in Hollywood, that dare not be spoken about. But because they couldn't be spoken about, if anything, the films are even better because of the subtlety, the illusion. And again, it's the characterization in Shadow of a Doubt, Notorious, and Rope that make them my favorites. They were so good that I left out a film, Rope, Hitchcock's first, which won the Best Picture Oscar. But I think these three all are great movies, well worth your time to watch, and we haven't even hit Hitchcock's best decade, which certainly was the 1950s, where I'm going to have an almighty struggle in picking which films for us to review and talk about. But please do see these three and throw in Rebecca, and you can't go wrong. You'll enjoy them all. And until then, I bid you a fond farewell. Uh, if you've enjoyed the culture, and next week is Hitchcock in the 50s, before Hitchcock in the 60s, and then we go on to look at some other film auteurs as we go. Again, we're paralleling my travels through film with my son, Benjamin. Um, if you really enjoy this, please do subscribe. Again, we've doubled our subscription just in the last month, and we're overwhelmed at our reaction, and we're now doing everything full-time. Monday is Book Serialization or Ukraine Day. Tuesday is The Culture Day. Wednesday is Around the World in 20 Minutes podcast, where we look at the beguiling new world we live in. Thursday is JL Writers, the Society page. And Friday is Publius's The Politics page. So we have a, a, an article um, or a video segment for every single day of the week, becoming your little local newspaper to the world. If you enjoy this, please do subscribe and please do give. For us to do this is taking an inordinate amount of time from my day job. I don't care. I'm enjoying it. I love working with our community, but we need $70 a year, just $7 a month, $70 a year, and we will keep them coming. So if you enjoy Hitchcock through the decades, please do give. Thanks a lot, and on to the golden 1950s, Hitchcock's golden decade.